is Buffalo Ghostlight. I'm Layla. And I'm Zach. And today we are going to be talking about some theater terms and superstitions. Now, by no means is this a comprehensive list of weird theater terms and superstitions, uh, but these are some that I thought were very fun and a nice introduction and ease into, um, you know, the rest of our podcast. Um, So... I'm going to start with um, kind of one of the reasons why I really wanted uh, the name of the podcast to be Ghostlight, um, and I kind of referenced it a little bit in our first episode. Um, so the Ghostlight is a light that stays on on stage when the space is unoccupied. Um, have you seen a Ghostlight before? I think I have, maybe. I, I don't know. It's one of those things that I was like, not really looking out for previously because I wasn't really sure about it. You know, the one play we did that was, um, you know, on like an actual theater stage and like a a traditional theater, I guess you would call it, was Mm -hmm. when we did In Crazy Love and I couldn't recall if I saw one. So this is usually for like older theaters. Um, I don't know how many modern theaters still use ghost lights, um, especially since right now we're not really doing physical theater. But I know for a lot of places, it's a really big part of the tradition that they uphold. And so there's a couple superstitions around why a ghost light is used. Um, Some believe that ghost lights are used to chase away mischievous spirits that live within the space. Um, while other people think that it lights the way for the ghosts that invariably live in the theaters because there's always a ghost in a theater. If the theater is old enough, there's a ghost in it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So, honestly, ghost lights are probably because the origins of them are because of safety when you really, like, think about it. (laughs) Yeah, in my head when you said it, I was thinking like, oh, like like if an exit light is on or something like that, so that you would know where to go if there was, you know, a fire. If You know, you were looking in front of you and you couldn't see anything. If it was completely dark, you're going to trip and fall. I'm going to trip and fall anyways. Oh, yeah. Somebody more coordinated probably (laughs) probably wouldn't. Yeah, so honestly, so for anyone who can't have like an image in their head of what a ghost light looks like, it's usually... Um, like a tall lamp with either a completely naked light bulb or a light bulb that has a cage around it. And so it's the idea behind it is that it gives off as much light as it can. Um, And the reason why you want that is because it's the only light that stays on in a dark space. Um, So when every other light is turned off within the theater, the only thing that stays on is the ghost light. And when you really think about it, you kind of need it. A theater is kind of a dangerous space. Um, You have, if you're in an older, uh, more like a Broadway house, you have an orchestra pit, which you could fall into. If you're walking around on the stage, you could fall over a prop, you could run into the set. And all those things took time to build or took time to find. And if you mess that up, you will have a very angry stage manager who is hopeful hopeful that you hurt yourself so that you learn your lesson and not do that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, honestly, yeah, that that's a very good point. Like, uh, especially the the one play we did, we had swords swords in it, and you know, I couldn't imagine you know tripping on those and screwing something up. Especially somebody was shackled in the play that we did. So if that happened with the shackle on. 
know, very liable to fall down or fall over. Yeah, so usually um, ghost lights are left on by the stage manager at the end of the night. So because it's tradition that the stage manager is the last person to leave the space. Um, so once everyone else is gone, all the lights are turned off, the stage manager uh, puts on the ghost light and puts it in a, in a place where it can light as much of the theater as possible. Um, there are also some that believe that ghost lights origins come from when gas was being used to light theaters. So instead of electricity, for a while we were using um, gas, natural gas. And there was, from the research that I did, it said that if you left a little bit of light on, it would relieve pressure on the gas valves. Because if you just turn it off completely, you would be building pressure on the gas cells and you could potentially start a fire or cause injury so to stop that from happening you would leave a little bit of light on so that it would burn off some of the gas but not a lot of it and it would leave this residual light in the space yeah that's that's actually pretty interesting because i i assumed ghost light came from like gaslight where you know 1800s that kind of era of theater they were probably using mostly that for you know spotlights and you know i'm not too familiar with the history there but it is you know a lot of london theater i know is you know something by gaslight or you know i i've heard of stage plays using that moniker kind of like to mm -hmm. take people back to that era yeah there was a very long period of time where we we used gas to light our spaces. I mean, a lot of places used gas, so it would make sense that a performance space would use it as well. But, you know, it's it's very unreliable and potentially dangerous because it's a literal open flame. <laughs> so once electricity started becoming more widely available, switching it to that and having the idea of the like naked light bulb that shines the light in the darkness. Yeah, that makes way more way more sense both safety and you know just progressing with the times but yeah yeah that's interesting I, I've never heard about that before and you know it, it's something I'm probably always going to be on the lookout for if I'm ever in a theater now yeah it's actually one of the things that I always look out for in an older theater not as an audience member because you wouldn't see the ghost light unless you're getting like a tour of the theater and they're just turning the lights on um, but as a person who's part of the cast I always try and see if I can find the ghost light and especially as a stage manager if you're in an older theater you are most likely in charge of taking care of that ghost light so you have to know where it is where it goes um, that way it's not like in people's way when you have it turned off right and the aspect that was really interesting to me what that you were just talking about was the supernatural background behind it mm -hmm. because you know i i don't know where you have this set up but and we were talking about the episode set up you know a week or two ago but um i'm familiar with like the Macbeth curse and like that aspect of theater essentially where it's like you know the superstition where you can't say Macbeth in a theater space and then there's like that whole I think it's like an online challenge that I read about forever ago. That's kind of the only one I'm really familiar with. And it's interesting to me how, you know, it, the art of theater is kind of intertwined with like this supernatural aspect to it, too, almost. Well, yeah. And I mean, it kind of makes sense because 
with theater, a lot of what you're dealing with is becoming another person, which that in itself people can see as a spiritual experience or you're dealing with something that is spirit-based. And then at the same time, you're also, when you look at the history of theater, things go wrong. Like, that's just, like, that's part of what theater is about. Like, you are going to have something go wrong. That's just the nature of the beast. And so anything you can do to make that less likely starts to develop superstitions. So if you do something where you're like, okay, well, if I wear these socks every time I do a show, it goes well. Okay, well, then every time I do a show, I'm going to always wear those socks because they're my good luck socks. Like there are people who have like very specific traditions or practices that they do. Um, And I think that's mutated over time where people don't look at them as superstition. They just think of it as like they're getting ready routine, but it, it still kind of is a superstition. You're making yourself feel like you're more in control when you're in a situation where things are going to go wrong, so you're not going to be in control. Right, and yeah, that's exactly, you know, because I can't really think of any parallels between, like, film, for instance, just because it's almost like theater is, like we were discussing on the first episode, it's a lot more, you know, improv you know very last minute live performance everything can go wrong whereas film it's like you get multiple shots and you know things do go wrong but I can't really think of an instance where it would be like this is going to go wrong so this is why we do this one specific thing or like have this saying for it Mm -hmm. except for like you know the monotony of film where it's just repetitive do it over and over and that's that's part of preparing for you know, mistakes, but with film, you don't really see the mistakes unless the director is like, ooh, that worked out really well and we'll incorporate it into the film, but they make it feel like it was always supposed to be there. Whereas in theater, a lot of it is, okay, that was not supposed to happen. We just got to keep going. We have to make it work. We have to incorporate it into what we're, what's going on. Like, it's really interesting to see how so many superstitions have come about because of a need for control in situations where you're not in control and also just safety. Like there's so many superstitions within the theater that literally are just due to safety. Um, And actually I have one, uh, the example is whistling in the theater. I think I briefly mentioned this to you a while ago, but um, when we were not doing the podcast, but yeah, it's so fascinating. So a long time ago, I don't have the dates because I suck at <laughs> You weren't research. there. No, I wasn't there. <laughs> um, but there was a very long period of time in theater's history where stagehands were sailors. Essentially, when sailors were not at sea um, and they needed money in between their seafaring trips, they would work many different jobs and one of them would be in theaters. Very often, the reason was they were very strong people. They could take orders and when you're old-fashioned theaters, when you are changing sets, you are literally changing backdrops, which were either cloth or they were full-on, like, wooden slats that would cover the whole back of the stage, and that's really heavy. And so then you would have to tie knots and keep it up there. Sailors are well-known for tying knots. Um, And actually, most of the knots that are used in... um, older theaters and large theaters that have a fly space, they use sailors knots to tie them. Um, And so the thing with the whistling before I go too off track um, (laughs) is that 
it's considered very bad luck to whistle in the theater because sailors would communicate to each other via whistles because ships are very large, especially when you're going on month, year-long trips. They're going to hold a lot of capacity. And if you're 20, 30, 50 feet in the air, however, I don't know how, how large a mast is, but you're far. You need to be able to communicate without shouting your voice hoarse so people would whistle to each other as a way of communication. And so it was considered dangerous to whistle in the theater because if you didn't know what you were whistling, you could hurt someone by giving someone a signal and maybe an actor was in the way or they didn't know that you had just signaled, hey, drop this really heavy piece of uh, staging. Like you were, if you didn't know what those whistles meant, you could potentially hurt someone. So as a safety precaution, it was said, just don't whistle in the theater. But over time, as we stopped using whistles and we moved more towards electronic means of communications, the whole idea behind whistling still stuck as a superstition of don't do that because it's unsafe. And I'm curious how that progressed because, you know, when you brought that up when we were talking about it before we were recording the podcast, I was really curious how this evolved, you know, into shows that you've done and how you see this performed now, you know, because, you know, it, it's very specific for why you wouldn't do it back then. And now it's become kind of this, this tradition almost. Whereas, you know, would you go as far as to say, like, it's avoided being written into scripts, like having the characters whistle at all? Or where do you see it kind of fitting into modern theater? So I think less and less people have adapted the superstition. I know that one of the first times I heard it was once I was um, out of college and I was working in a theater, like a, a prof- quote-unquote professional theater, something outside of uh, an educational space. And I remember when I first heard that, I was like, why? It doesn't matter. And they were like, no, it really matters. Don't whistle in the theater. It's like, okay. But I've seen whistling in plays. I think the thing is that if it's within the scene if it's within the play itself that's fine the same thing with Macbeth like the whole idea of not saying Macbeth within the theater or it's bad luck or you're bringing potential death um because that's where the superstition comes from they're afraid that if you say that name you're inviting death into the theater um and I think that in the play itself you say the name constantly but it's when you're not working the scenes when you're not in the text itself saying the name is considered really bad luck and I think it's the same thing with whistling where if it wasn't within the scene and it wasn't within the practice don't do it because you're just inviting bad luck okay yeah that's that that's kind of interesting but I wonder if it's more like like you said like professional or traditional theaters where they're still using those techniques almost maybe Do you think that that might be why certain people still adapt that superstition? Maybe. I think it's one of those things that's like passed down oral history. Like the whole thing with Macbeth is I found out about it when I was in, I want to say high school. And I remember my theater teacher being, it's bad luck to say that name when you're in the theater. It's like, okay, why? She was like, it's just bad luck. It's like, okay. And so it was kind of one of those things where because a person of authority or a person that you respect tells you don't do that, it's bad luck, out of deference for their wishes, you go, okay, fine, I won't do it. Um, And so it just kind of 
continues. And I think it's very similar to that with whistling, the idea of, you know, there's a couple of different superstitions where you kind of keep doing it because either older actors or actors you respect ask you not to do it. So then you also don't do it. I know younger actors, I've known younger actors who are like, I don't care. I'll say Macbeth in the theater, whatever. Um, But then there's also pressure from other actors who are like, no, you can't say that. You need to like, and that's the thing that's also funny with Macbeth is that there are so many different ways of counter fighting the name and the bad luck that gets brought with it like I've heard in theater companies where they have to like recite a verse from the play I've heard of other people having to run outside the theater do something like either a dance or yeah yeah, and then they have to be able to come back like there's so many different ways of combating the bad luck that it's it seems like it's very unique to either different theater companies or even different spaces yeah, because that's where I, I kind of heard the legend was I was I had this phase where I was super into like the supernatural and like curses and stuff like that. So I discovered, you know, the Macbeth curse or the Scottish play, I think they call it like mm-hmm. in the supernatural community where it was said that, you know, before a performance, somebody would go into the the audience and say Macbeth run out of the theater, uh, spin around three times or something like that. And then walk back into the theater and it would invite good luck to the performance but then if you said Macbeth and didn't do that that would be inviting bad luck into it and something would go wrong yeah it's just again going back to what I was saying earlier with the ghost light thing and a lot of superstitions theater is a form that you will inevitably have something go wrong so if you can trick yourself into thinking that you have more control within the space by doing some actions or following a tradition or banding together and doing something collectively, it gives you the sense of, okay, well, some things are going to go wrong, but we have made it so that less things will be going wrong because we have done something. Um, it's that human flaw of trying to trick ourselves into thinking we have more control than we actually do. Exactly. Yes. And I, I think it's really fascinating because we're, when you're in theater, you're in a field where you, you're not just relying on yourself. You are inevi- You have to rely on other people. Even if you're doing a one-person show, unless you literally do everything yourself, which is, trust me, impossible – you are going to be working with other people. You're going to work with a stage designer, um, a stage manager, a director, someone who's running the lights. You even have the people who are in the front of the house. You are working with others. And so because of that, human error comes into play. It's just inevitable. But then you're also performing. You're creating a story, a narrative in front of other people. And you know, sometimes your memory is faulty or you walk off stage the wrong way. Like there's so many things that can go wrong just because your memory is faulty or another person does something wrong and then you have to backpedal and fix it or work with whatever's happening. So yeah, like you were saying, it's that human desire to control when we have no control. And then another part of it is I think, you know, I, I don't know specifically how you feel, but, you know, believing super certain, 
certain superstitions if i could talk uh <laughs> is kind of like it, it invites like this idea of fun into the into the space and kind of creates you know this shared sense of you know this is larger than life what we're doing is amazing and this aspect of it is also bringing it up too and it can kind of invite you know other people into this situation that we're we're all part of yeah i definitely think there is an element of that i think that's far more within the younger generation like a younger generation of creatives and actors see it as more fun whereas i think for some older actors or for actors who were trained in a more serious like in a very serious environment there's this element of like no this is tradition we have to uphold it and whereas I think for some younger actors it's like this is kind of fun like this is something that gives us a sense of community and we all do it so we're part of it together right and it's theater too it's you know it's work and we're trying to perfect a performance but also at the same time we should all be having fun with it yeah exactly um so i'm not really sure how to jump onto the next topic from here but just segue it up (laughs) we're gonna segue into another term that i thought was really interesting um it's called the sits probe now this is really a term that's only used with Uh, musicals Um, you don't really use this term when you're doing a straight play um, which actually is another term that's really interesting so straight plays are plays that have no musical or if they have music in it it's more it doesn't create the entire storyline it's It's more like diegetic yes exactly so whereas a musical the music is it tells the story you you have to have the music in the piece otherwise you have no storyline um so the sits probe comes from uh german and it is a word meaning a sitting rehearsal so the reason this started is it what it is is basically a rehearsal where singers and musicians come together and they go through all the musical numbers it's also used in operas actually um so it used to be the first run through of a performance that had both the actors and the orchestra and it would be a full rehearsal with props costumes the whole shebang over time it's become more focused on just running the music with the orchestra and the actors without any adding on of costumes props or staging so this is actually much earlier in the rehearsal schedule than a sits probe used to be um And a lot of the times it'll just look like a bunch of musicians in a room plus the actors who are sitting um, with maybe like a music stand in front of them. And whenever it's their part or whenever they're at their song, they'll stand so that they can sing. And then when they're not in the song, they'll just sit down. And it's a really useful um, rehearsal time because in a musical, a lot of the times especially when you're doing professional theater, you'll run the scenes and then you'll run the songs separately. So being able to have the songs with the musicians and not just a recorded track, having the ability to hear the live music and say, okay, this is what it's actually going to sound like and not just a recording. This is what this specific orchestra is going to do so that we can work off of it and they can also hear our voices i think it's a really useful rehearsal process element and that's actually something i've never heard of before it's 
and and that's you said only only really in musicals too just because you know you would have the orchestra separate and it's something mm-hmm. i've never really considered because to bring it back to film you know everything is done post after you film it so it's a lot of times you know with musical film especially you never really hear the completed musical score until you're in a recording booth and you're you have to like listen to it for the first time the same way you would pretty much do you know recorded music except a lot of times you know you would have an idea of what it was going to sound like beforehand hmm interesting yeah, no, and I think, again, it's because of the live element of it with an opera or with a musical, you have to know what the sound is going to be, how you will be emoting, how you will be working with another live element. If you're working with a live orchestra, you need to know what they're going to sound like, and they have to know what you're going to sound like, so that right. they play off each other and, and feed into each other. And especially with a live orchestra, you know, there's no volume control there. You need to know how loud you have to be and you have to know exactly how to work with those musicians. Mm-hmm. Oh, for sure. And when you're in larger theaters, I'm thinking like Broadway, you have the ability to have microphones. Smaller right. theater companies, depending on their funding, they may or may not have microphones. So that also plays into, you know, how large of an orchestra are you going to have? How loud is that orchestra able to play dependent on the volume of the actor that you have? So it is a hugely useful um rehearsal to have when you're doing a musical because sometimes like having done a musical oh gosh wow it was two years ago um (laughs) but part of part of it the learning process for me was figuring out the in between like doing the scenes by themselves and then doing the music and making sure that the actors knew what the music needed to sound like so that they knew what they were going into so that it wasn't just a dead scene no music, dead scene, no music, like having those in-betweens and knowing what it was going to sound like gave them an idea of how to bridge those scenes emotionally. Right. And I'm sure it's even very helpful for the musicians too. Cause like, I don't know if I mentioned this on the first episode, I come from like my father's musician plays in a band and he will tell me how it's what it's like when he plays with a certain drummer compared to another one you know there's there's kind of that collaboration there as well for the musicians in the orchestra pit i'm sure also where you know you have to be at the right tempo and figure out exactly when everything is going to come in so it's kind of like you know it's the whoever is in the scene along with the orchestra and it's kind of that combined collaboration between the two groups of people like you have all of the different musicians coming together along with all of the singers coming together and then the combination of the two mm-hmm. yeah it's it's a really great piece of the puzzle um and super useful if people are doing musicals and they're not doing a sits probe you're doing it wrong <laughs> <laughs> um and then you are definitely going to know what this term is but i thought it was a really interesting um element to it and also Can I there guess what it is yeah, go for it. Is it break a leg? No, although oh. we can definitely talk about that. Um, but I 
was going to bring up the term of a swing because I think that not like right. the ones that you find in a playground, um, <laughs> but rather it refers to a person that learns multiple roles in the ensemble in case someone gets sick, an actor gets fired, whatever it may be. Um, but I thought it was interesting to bring it up because there are terms that get used interchangeably and they actually mean very different things because there's an understudy there's a standby and there's a swing and they're all actually fairly different. Um, do you, do you want to guess what the differences are? Uh, understudy I'm assuming is somebody who is dedicated to learning one specific role, whereas a swing is kind of a rotating, you know, you could fill in here, here, or here. Mm -hmm. That's very good. That's actually almost exactly correct. And understudy like you said, they definitely have a specific role that they learn. Usually it is, uh, on, on, they might be someone in the ensemble of a musical or they have a minor role and they are responsible for covering a lead or supporting role. So they're still in the show, but if, for example, a lead role can't make it or they get sick, they would be the person to step into their feet. So with an understudy, they are still acting within the show. Like, they're still on. A swing um, is an offstage performer. Same thing with a standby. They're actually both roles that are usually offstage, and, but they are responsible for covering people. So a swing is different from a standby because a swing is responsible for learning multiple ensemble tracks. So people who are considered more like the background, like they would be like, peasant people in Fiddler on the Roof, or they would be like the can-can dancer, whatever They'd it may be. They'd be like space fillers, essentially, right? Yeah, yeah, essentially. But they can learn as many as 12 or more tracks. So if that person speaks, they have to know their lines. If that person is a dancer, they have to be able to dance and know their choreography. And that could be 12 different choreographies, in the sense of like 12 different people's specific choreography. And sometimes people are doing very different things, and you have to remember what they are. A standby, in difference, is a person whose only responsibility is to cover a lead in a production. This is usually used in Broadway, especially if the lead is a star. So, for example, like, Hamilton was huge. People loved it. There was definitely a standby for Hamilton, who covered just Lin-Manuel Miranda. That's all they did. Their only responsibility was if... Lynn got sick one night, they covered for him. But the rest of the time, they were off stage. They would help out, or if maybe they were really good standby, they maybe knew other people's roles and could step in if need be. But a standby's main role is to just cover the lead in a production. It also sounds like, especially with, you know, with the example you gave of Hamilton, the standby would be, uh, you know, kind of the one person you wouldn't want to be in that specific situation if the entire audience was there to see the, you know, quote-unquote star of the musical. Yeah, and there's a, a lot of flack that's given to standbys, and it's really unfortunate because they have a really hard role to play, especially right. with swings as well. Like, you're learning someone else's role, 
And some people get really excited about seeing specific people. And your job is to essentially step in for those moments where things are not in control. If someone is sick, someone's gotten into an accident, someone ran off with uh, and got married and eloped and they moved to another country, whatever the situation may be, their job is very essential because if that thing happens, it's either they step in and take co- and cover or the show just doesn't happen, which means you have to refund everyone in the audience and and potentially lose your reputation. You have the hardest job with the least payoff, essentially. Yeah, it's it's a very um what's the term I'm looking for? It's a it's a disrespected role that should have far more respect for it. Right. Yeah, so an example I came up with was, say a lead isn't able to make it to a show because they're sick. So either a standby or an understudy would take up the role. For a smaller company, it would probably be an understudy. Um, But that understudy's role now needs to be performed because they're stepping in for the lead. So then that could be covered by a swing. Um, If you were an even smaller company, you might have a swing that has learned multiple people's roles, including a lead, so that if the lead were to not be able to make it, then they would step in and do their role, as well as having their own character that they perform for in the show. So it's it's super complicated, and they have to be ready at the drop of a pin. I personally am always like amazed by understudies and swings like they have the hardest job it's a thankless job yeah it's definitely one that you know people like you and i will appreciate but the general public would be like "Mm, don't really care for that yeah i (laughs) actually got unlucky with the night that we went (laughs) oh my gosh i actually remember when i was in college i I person I was in the musical theater club for a little bit. I mostly was there as a secretary, and I had friends of mine who were within the club who were total nerds and who knew understudies. Like they would go to shows and they would get excited by seeing who an understudy was. I was like, "Wow, you really are very excited about this." And they're like, "Yeah, they're amazing." Like two weeks ago, I got to see this show on discount and they were the understudy for this role and they did fantastic. So I can't wait to see them in this other role. Like they got really into it. And I think the people who are like real theater nerds who really appreciate the work that an understudy does, they're the ones who truly like see them for what they are, which is an outstanding actor. (laughs) And sometimes a really fantastic dancer because a lot of the times understudies and swings are used within a musical. They're kind of like the underground musical acts that like, in, I'm thinking like early nineties, they would be like the, I can't even think of a low tier band from that time. They'd be the one that you would want to go see over Nirvana. Yeah. The one where everyone would be like, we are going to go see Nirvana. And you were like, no, I want to go see this like indie rock group. And I was like, why? I was like, because I, I was waiting you. for you to come up with your own no, like, grunge come on. name. No, Jay, my partner would be the one who would be like, how he's going to listen back to this podcast and be like, you could have listed five groups like off the top of your head. And I'm like, nope, I'm freezing. And I oh, don't no, know. I just wanted you to make one up. <laughs> oh, how about the Screaming Lemons? How's that? There you go. That's great. <laughs> Actually, that's a great indie band name. 
It is. Um, and then one last term that I wanted to bring up um, that's more related to musicals, or not musicals, actually, this is more related to larger theaters, especially theaters that have uh, actors that are within um, what the unions, So um, and who also have tech people who work within unions. So it's called a 10 out of 12. So during tech, there are days that are designated as a 12-hour workday. 10 of those hours are spent working, and two hours are allowed for meals and breaks. So you get like one full hour for lunch, and then probably it would be split with a half-hour break and then a half-hour break. Or if you were a smoker, you would take like a bunch of 15-minute breaks or whatever. Um, So this doesn't really get used in smaller companies, because in smaller companies, especially like green buffalo we some days we would work like 10 hours and then others will be like oh we did five and we're all done like it really depends on the show that a smaller theater company does um but especially if you're working with unions you have to have very specific work times um and you can't work over certain hours without having breaks um so Mm -hmm. that's where that term the 10 out of 12 came from i've never heard that one before but in my mind I, I don't know why I was thinking this, but I was like, oh, wow, 12 hour workday. That sounds stressful. And then I realized that's literally every film shoot I've ever had to be on was, you know, 10 hours of setting up, 10 hours of filming, 10 hours of this, that. And then the two hours of break or just waiting for things to happen. <laughs> but yeah, that I you can make a lot of parallels there between, you know, tech rehearsals and, you know, actual filming dates. But I don't. You, I can't even think of a Green Buffalo show that I've had to be there for five hours of unless it was like, you know, putting that tree together or oh my gosh, doing some kind of <laughs> doing some kind of like additional work that would have been outside of the production we were doing. Yeah, but uh, this is usually with like larger theaters. Um musicals I'm thinking about where they have like very large set pieces but even straight plays that um, get done on Broadway or even off Broadway that are within a larger theater if they have an extensive set or they have a lot that needs to be run because it's very fast-paced and there's a lot of elements to it it would make sense that you would work a 12-hour day but you need to have breaks like you can't just work for 12 hours straight like right that's insane so that's why they started that's why they created that term the 10 out of 12 because you would work 10 out of the 12 hours with a two-hour break that you could however the company decided to break it up that's how they would do it yeah and that you know with theater especially like 10 out of 12 i'm Assuming a lot of that is dedicated to, you know, just rehearsal, 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 right? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, for okay. sure. Like, you do back-to-back-to-back, to back to back, just making sure that you have everything correct. Um, you don't want to over-rehearse, but at the same time, when you're in tech week, you're bringing in a lot of elements that might be brand new. Like, depending on the theater, depending on how much time you've been able to be in the actual performance space, tech week may be the first time that you are incorporating all of those elements, light, set, um, not props, you would have props earlier in the rehearsal period, but costumes, makeup, you need to be able to rehearse that multiple times so that you're not walking into a performance blind and going, oh no, I have no idea what I'm getting ready for. Or, you know, one day you might run the entire scene 
the entire play on one angle and then you come in the next day and the producers have completely shifted the chairs and the arrangements of everything so you're completely thrown off yeah that usually doesn't happen with it but that does happen with a smaller company sometimes (laughs) throwing a little shade there (laughs) um but yeah it does sometimes happen but most of the time by tech week like with most companies, tech week means that you are not changing how things need to get done. You're really just incorporating other elements. And so then you might have to change certain things so that everything works together, but you shouldn't be starting from scratch. Tech week is not the time to do that. Right. It's kind of the nail out all the kinks. Yes, exactly. That's exactly what Tech Week is for. Um, oh my gosh, wow. We've talked about a lot of different th- We didn't even hit all the things I had written down. We'll have to do another episode. <laughs> Part two, coming soon. <laughs> yeah. Well, I want to thank everyone for joining us today. It was really, really fun talking to Zach. Um, Zach, do you want to talk about Patreon? Oh, yeah. Um, You can go to the Green Buffalo Productions Patreon and you can find all sorts of cool stuff there. Uh, You know, just donate whatever you can. You know, we're not begging for it, but whatever amount of money that falls out of your pocket that you wouldn't mind losing. If you could throw that in there, you're helping out some really cool people. And, you know, it's local community theater. Yeah, whatever loose change you have in the bottom of your pocket, we'll take it. Exactly. We can can use that. (laughs) We want to thank Everlasting Enlightenment for our intro and outro music. You can find them on Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, and Twitter. Alrighty then. Well, thank you so much for joining us for another episode of Buffalo Ghost Light. We'll see you next time. See you next time. <laughs>